0: and we're live how's everybody doing tonight
1: good how are you Brett
0: I'm doing all right it's been a stressful week but here I am ready to talk about some recovery ready to talk to our new friend Mary Beth excited to be here
1: this is gonna be a good one I'm excited about this week it's gonna be a different perspective you want to jump in Go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe.
2: Sure, sure, sure. And of course, you know, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to your audience and tell a little bit about me and, you know, sort of some of the uh, issues or, or concepts that I talk ab- advocate about. Um, so I think my story in brief is really that child abuse led to childhood addiction. I My mother really wasn't bonded or connected to me, which was problematic. And she sometimes would be violent, but the real big problem arose when she married my stepfather when i was nine and he was really abusive to all of us he was physically abusive to her he was verbally emotionally physically and sexually abusive to me um and so living in the house where i never really knew what was going to happen and where i didn't have control over the situation and it created a lot of stress so for me uh drugs looked like a good idea and I started using alcohol first when I was 12. And then I moved on to pot, then pills, then acid, until I found my drug of choice at 16, which was methamphetamine. And I started shooting meth at 17 and was in full-bore addiction when I graduated from high school. So, you know, it was not a, not a great start to life. It was already problematic very at a very young age. And I did manage to keep it a little bit better under control in college. I moved from New Jersey to California, so the geographic switch helped a bit. I still used to excess at times, but I mostly kept it on the weekends. I didn't use meth that much, which helped me stay a little bit more in control, but in College, I had a really life threatening multi assailant rape. And then I moved in with my abusive boyfriend in my senior year. And by January of my senior year, I could not hold it together anymore. And I turned back to my familiar relief, which was meth. And I started again. And I spent the next 10 years using. Um, using meth on a regular basis, basically almost a daily basis. And I started tuning again about a year or two after I started up again. So that was, you know, put to, puts me at 32, right? I worked my way down the corporate ladder because I couldn't hold a job. I, my body was breaking down. I was having a lot of problems. And I was really in a hopeless, miserable, depressed state um, at 32 years old. That's a hard start. Yeah, it wasn't a good start. You know, I even say, you know, things went bad before I even came out of the womb because my mother was actually in 1961, an unwed teenaged woman, and that in a... Irish Catholic household. And that was a major problem. So the first six months of my life, I actually lived with the nuns. I didn't even live with my family. So even, even that little piece of unusual part of my story is trouble before I even, as I say, before I even came out of the womb, it was trouble.
1: (laughs) And that's hard because there's so much that happens during that time, you know, bonding and it's, it's just hard. It's, You know, and I've I've learned recently about, you know, infant trauma and, you know, we never knew that that kind of stuff could affect people that early, just not bonding properly.
2: That's that's right. I I mean, I, I expect the nuns took physical care of me and, you know, probably gave me some attention. But even my mother's own version of the story is that she came by, you know, occasionally to visit me. Um, and when I met my now husband, he he told me that I reminded him of those monkeys who never got touched as babies, you know, that that was really the impression that he had for me. So I, I do think it had an impact that, but it was also an impact because it was indicative of the lack of bonding from my mother to me in general. She just wasn't really focused on being a mother. It wasn't something that she was particularly interested in. And so all of that really set me up to feel alone. I actually had OCD-like tendencies when I was four or five years old. I remember them very specifically. So I was trying to soothe myself in whatever way I could. Even at that young age, I had sort of um, unusual behavior patterns in an effort to try to calm myself.
1: Yeah. It sounds like it was a rough start. And Actually, you're – Your time frame is pretty close to what mine was, because I'm 37 and I've been in recovery for, you know, five and a half years. So I was probably about 32. So when I found recovery, I'm about where you are in your story. So
2: yes that's right so so you know how long it is if you picked up at an early age like i did in particular i mean i used for 20 years and i really would say that i was you know in had a substance use disorder for at least 16 of those years if not more um because of course we never know what day we you know we switch from a um someone who's just using to someone who actually has a problem but i i really pursued drugs from the beginning i pursued alcohol right away Um, The first time that I drank with my girlfriend, you know, it was fun and we were laughing and giggling, but I was immediately seeking alcohol out. I was trying to find ways to get it. Even at that young age, I was stealing beers from my stepfather. I was taking that risk. And every time I was going somewhere, I would be looking for older people who might have access to alcohol. And so even from the beginning, I was pursuing it. It wasn't casual. It was on my mind. I was planning. How can, how can I get, you know, access to alcohol, whatever the next drug was, when, how, you know, how am I going to, how am I going to find it? Who's going to have it? It was just a constant mind obsession from a, from, Pretty much the first drink that I had. Well, what happened? You said at 32, then? Yeah. So at 32, I go into into rehab. um, I went into a women's program near me. I live in the San Francisco Bay area, and it was a long-term program. It was a 90-day minimum commitment. And I thought I needed that. You know, I was really, I mean, I really destroyed my life. I was Barely hanging on by my fingernails. I wouldn't even say I was hanging on. <laughs> I wasn't hanging on anymore, and I hadn't been for a long time. So I thought a longer-term program was a good idea. Um, and I went there thinking, you know, I'm I'm going for medical treatment. Help, they'll help me out. And when I got there, I was actually surprised because. Every day, they would do a step study, as a lot of recovery houses do, and you know they would read one of the steps, and then they would either read the big book text or the NA text about the step, and then we would have a conversation, and it so happened on my first day, they were doing step three, made a decision to turn my will my life over to the God of my understanding, I think is the terminology, and so during the discussion, I raised my hand, and I said, you know, what about me? I'm an atheist and I don't believe in God. And and they did say it doesn't have to be God. It can be any higher power. And I said, but I, I don't believe in a higher power. And they really were adamant and vehemently insistent that there was one and only one way to recover. And that was the 12 step way. And that if I kept on running on my self will as they categorized it and refusing to follow the recommendations or really the orders um, that they told me that I was going to fail, that I wasn't going to be able to get so- sober like everybody else, and so it was a it was a problem right away. Uh, you know, literally on day one, they were telling me I had to do something that I could not do. So that was a surprise and a and a stunner from, from my point of view.
1: <laughs> I'm glad there's
2: a lot more options these days. Well, okay. there were they existed then too. They just didn't tell me about them. So. You know, so I'm there. And of course, I'm paying, you know, the experts. I assume they're telling me the truth that this is the one and only way. And I asked several people and I asked people at 12 step meetings that we went to, you know, as part of the recovery house. We would go to meetings at certain times off, off of campus. And everyone told me this was it was the only way. And so. I really had to figure out what what I was going to do about that, because I knew I couldn't I, I wasn't comfortable. Well, I, wasn't, I couldn't do the higher power. I really wasn't happy with the powerless idea or with the focus on defects and some of the other pieces. But they swore this is all there is. There's nothing else. And so I really had to stand back and think about what the heck am I going to do? Um, so I decided that I was just going to do my best to keep my mind open and to look for the ideas that I thought would be helpful and just ignore everything else. And so that's what I did. I mean, they have, you know, they had a lot of, they had a lot of classes that taught me useful information. They taught some of the science of substance use disorder. They, you know, we had a, family dynamics classes we had. Um, they taught us about things like how to recognize and handle triggers. They recommended group support. We did a lot of exercises and workbooks. And there was useful, valuable information in there that I was able to apply and and, um, and take advantage of. And, and I even went through all the 12 steps. I did my best to look for the ideas there that I thought I could use. So I read all of the big books all of the NA text, all of the other books that they have. Um, and I was looking for, you know, are there core ideas here? Even if I don't agree with all of it. Are there other ideas here that I can actually still use? And I did find, you know, some ideas that were helpful. Um, I took the, the powerless step one, which I wasn't comfortable with, but I thought about it and I decided that what I could agree with is that Mary Beth is powerless to moderate. (laughs) Like there is no moderating for Mary Beth. (laughs) Um, And I took that step three, you know, turn my will of my life over, which I wasn't going to do, but I thought about it and I thought, well, you know, I can use it as sort of an idea of limited control. Right. And so that I should like set my goals and do the work to reach them, but I couldn't always control the outcome. So I sort of tried to do things like that one day at a time. I found that really helpful. So if I was having a bad craving day, I would say, you know, I'm not deciding for tomorrow, you know, but for today, I'm not going to use. And so I did that. I went through and tried to find all of the ideas that I thought would be useful and apply them. So that was my first effort was to just try to work with what I was given, which I was, was, I was told was the entire universe of ideas. Well,
1: was that the universe of ideas or did you yeah. build off
2: that? it certainly was not the universe of ideas so so i got i went home i ended up staying five months even you know i extended my time they thought i needed it and i thought it was probably a good idea so um let me emphasize to your viewers that it, it's, it's 1994 okay there is no google okay so i went home and i thought well first of all i i thought could it really be true that no atheist in the history of the world has ever gotten sober, right? That seemed unlikely, (laughs) unlikely. Um, So I went to the library to see whether there actually were other options. And, you know, I I had gotten my car and I actually had to look up in the phone book. I'd never been to my local library. And I went down to the library and it turns out, lo and behold, there were other options, even in 1994, and they just hadn't told me about them. Um, so I found first Women for Sobriety, which of course still exists today, and Women for Sobriety focuses. Well, it's the first modern secular program, uh, you know, of any kind, and they focus on self empowerment, you know, releasing the past, taking control of your life. Um, and I really like the introduction, and in, you know how we say in 12-step, you say I'm Mary Beth and I'm an addict, but in Women for Sobriety, you don't introduce yourself that way. You say I'm Mary Beth. And I'm a competent woman. That's the introduction. And for me, in the beginning, I I didn't mind saying I'm Mary Beth and I'm an addict. I thought I sort of needed to beat it down into my brain and really, you know, pound it in. But by now, it's about eight months in and I wasn't comfortable with it anymore. I thought it was too narrow. It wasn't really encompassing the essence of who I was. Um, And I just... I just felt it wasn't helpful. And so when I heard the I'm Mary Beth and I'm a competent woman introduction, I felt like I sort of sat straight and you know stood tall. Um, it just felt very empowering. And it was more about where I was at that point, trying to move forward in my life, trying to you know become sort of what they call a capable, competent and competent woman. And so that was a really helpful, those ideas. And then I found um, Rational Recovery, which basically is today's SMART Recovery. And they focused on relapse prevention and that you actually, um, your self-will is sufficient to establish a, a strong recovery foundation. Um, so they viewed that as a positive, not as a negative. As in rehab, they told me it was a negative. Um, and then I found SOS sector Organization for Sobriety, which today basically is LifeRing Secular Recovery. SOS exists, but it's not, it's fairly small. Um, LifeRing broke off in 1995, and they're much bigger, and I'm on the board for LifeRing, and they focus on self-empowerment, rational decision-making, and mutual support. And so, yes, there were alternatives even in 1994. Those alternatives exist today, as well as many more which is really helpful. And you can use the internet and get much easier research done than I had to do. So that's a real great improvement over the last 28 years since I got sober. Um, But but I actually ended up not following any one of those programs. I just kept doing the same thing I had done, which was I pulled the ideas that I thought would be useful and I just sort of synthesized them. Um, and that's what today Lifering would call building a personal recovery plan. But, but that's what I did. I, or we, today we might call it a hybrid plan or a patchwork plan, but those terms didn't exist then. But, but that's what I did.
1: Well, different things work for everybody. Right. You come to find that out. And you know, one path that you, it might not work the same way you have to, everyone's life is different. We come, we come into this with different experiences, beliefs. Okay education, like everything. It's so, so one thing just, you can follow every single rule and it might not work for you. But or you can follow no, no rules. And, you know, make it work. It's just <sighs>
0: yeah. And I, I wanted to highlight right there where sober coin asked, what was the number one thing that helps you stay sober?
2: You know, I think in the long run, it actually was helpful to me to have to find my own path. You know, it really helped me develop a sense of competence, right? I mean, I, it was scary when they were telling me to do something that I couldn't do. I, it was frightening because I was looking at 20 years of bad decision making behind me, right? I had been making poor choices for a long time. And now I'm sort of, already on day one, questioning the experts. And that was scary because I didn't know if I could trust my own judgment. Was I being arrogant or was I being true to myself? It was a um, a conversation I had with myself re- repeatedly in the early days. So I was afraid that I was just um, rejecting things and, and that they, they might be right. And that if I did that, I was going to fail. So it was frightening, but in the long run, I think having sort of grabbed control of my process, making my own choices and then doing the work, the research, the analysis to figure out what would be useful to me that actually really built up my sense of competence which I didn't have at 20, you know, at 32 after 20 horrible years. Um, and it built up my it built up my my sense of competence and ability to guide myself forward. And it really increased my confidence that maybe I could trust myself, not that I was gonna make perfect decisions because whatever program we follow, I don't think we mostly, make most of us don't make perfect decisions all the time, but that generally speaking, I was going to be able to move myself in a positive direction. And so that was really helpful. Um, and an, another idea that I found really useful was this, that idea of incremental improvements. I really had to learn patience because I, I wanted my recovery to go at a much faster pace than it did. And I think everyone that I know in early recovery, in my rehab, for example, um, I think we all hoped we would be fixed in, you know, six months, maybe a year but it turns out it's a longer process than that and i had to learn to accept the incremental improvement um and that was that was really useful to really realize it's it's i cannot leap from where i am when i w- walked into the rehab stores you know to where i would be f- 5 or 10 years later i couldn't even leap to the job my education technically qualified me for because I had a horrible resume and you know, every job, less responsibility, less money. I held it for less time because of my addiction. Um, And I wasn't used to doing normal work, things like getting up on time and going to work every day and staying all day and not leaving because I was sick in the afternoon and then, and doing a good job and doing it the next day and the next, I had to learn how to do that. And so I started at a low level job because it's all I could handle. And then it was, you know, next job is a higher level. At six years sober, I went to law school. At 20 years sober, I was appointed a federal judge. So um, that acceptance or that realization that recovery required patience and it was going to be a process of incremental improvement, that was a really critical idea for me in recovery.
1: So what made you decide
2: to go to law school? Well, you know, so um, I had, well, law school's a little complicated. So many complicated stories. Um, I actually went to law school right out of college, but remember that I had started using meth again in January of my senior year. So, by the time I got there, I was in full bore um meth use disorder again. I mean, I remember being in the bathroom one time and having this horrible bloody nose, I, you know, it was ridiculous. So, I had to withdraw. I, I could, it, I was incapable. I mean, I had gotten accepted to Berkeley Law, it's a top 10 law school, and I withdrew. Because of my addiction. Um, and that was a horrible pain for me. It was horrible. I mean, I hated even driving near that building. You know, it just, it was agonizing. Uh, so when I got sober, I worked my way up from a, my first job was a temporary, low level, part time admin job. And then my second job was like a mid level, full time admin job. And then my third job was a supervisor job. And At a larger company and basically i looked at my boss's job and my boss's boss's job and i didn't want those jobs (laughs) so you know if that means i'm not in the right place and so i thought started thinking about well maybe i could try law school again but it was really It's frightening for me to think about having to explain myself, what had happened, you know, what had gone wrong, because I told them it was financial problems or illness or both, I think. And um, and so it was scary to risk applying and being rejected when it was already so painful but I did decide to do it. And so I, you know, there's a law school admission test. I had, a, it was by now it's like 15 years later. Okay. It's 15 years later. I had to start over from scratch and 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 I should have started over from scratch. I didn't remember the little that I learned. Um, so I took the, I studied for the test and then I applied and I applied again to Berkeley. And then I also applied to Hastings, which is in San Francisco and it's a good school, but it's, you know, not a top 10 like Berkeley and Berkeley rejected me, but San uh, Hastings took me and then, which was exciting. I was going to a pretty good law school, um, but then I was number three in my class of 400. And so then Berkeley took me back and I ended up actually graduating from Berkeley. So that's my long-winded complicated law school story.
1: <laughs> That's pretty cool though. I mean, that goes to show that nothing's impossible, even if in the moment it feels like you're giving something up doesn't mean you can't come back later.
2: That's exactly right. And and you know, sometimes people say, I mean, so after law school I worked at a big law firm and then I did class action work for the federal government and then I was appointed in 2014, at 20 years sober, a federal administrative law judge. Well, let me just say, audience, I had no intention or even, you know, inkling that I would ever become a judge when I went into recovery, right? It was always, it was really about what's the right next step? You know, what's the right next job? What do I need to do to prepare myself for that next job? Um, And then doing a reasonable time at each step. It wasn't racing forward i mean i went to law school six years sober you know not three months sober, six years sober that's how long it took me to get ready for that and then i had to work you know for a number of years before and so it does i know sound like wow she you know went from i call my story as i call my book from junkie to judge one woman's triumph over trauma and addiction but you know i went from junkie to judge over a 20-year period so um it is I think in early recovery, we don't really have any idea of where we might end up in six years or 20 years or even in two years because we're still connecting. We still need that time to connect to who we really are so that we can even understand what we want. And then we have to figure out how to get the skills and the experiences that we need to move on to the next step. But as long as you're always looking ahead to what's the right next step, you know, eventually you can go almost anywhere with that, with that approach. And that's sort of how I look at it.
1: And I think it's great to point out that just because we have a problem or a disease, it doesn't mean that we're not smart or that we didn't learn skills during that time. I mean, to be an active addiction for that long, like that's a hustle, like. A a lot of skills were gained that maybe weren't used for for good at that time, but can be used to make great progress later.
2: But nothing's wasted. That's true. That's true. And I will say in my years in recovery, and I do have 28 years of continuous sobriety at that point, I see more and more people coming in earlier. And I am so happy to see that, you know, that there's not no longer this idea that you have to bottom out. I mean, bottoming out, first of all, it was always retrospective, right? Where was your bottom? Well, you don't even know if it was your bottom until you got a couple of years of sobriety. And then maybe you can say that was your bottom. But that's it's it's unnecessary to wait until you've destroyed every aspect of your life. The earlier you come in, the less destruction there is. I'm not, I don't mean to say it's easy. It's it's going to still be hard, but better today than five years from now. And I do see more and more people come in that haven't destroyed themselves You know, at, at the level that I had. And I am so happy to see that because it gives them they are starting out sort of in, in the middle of, for me, I had to work my way up over several years to get to where they're starting out professionally, at least not, I mean, I'm sure of course they have their challenges with staying sober and probably have some emotional damage and other areas to work on. But I just do love seeing people coming in more at a higher rate before they've absolutely destroyed their entire life and every aspect of it. So, yay.
1: <laughs> that's one of those. How yeah. old were you when you came into recovery?
0: Uh, 23.
2: Oh, see, that's fabulous. Yeah.
1: And I love seeing collegiate recovery. Like those, like, I don't wanna say kids cause they're young adults, <laughs> but like they're some awesome people that are gonna do some amazing things. And a lot of them have, I mean, like like Greg Williams, he came in real young and he's killing it out there.
2: Yeah, I mean, I wish I would have come in earlier. You know, um, I just, I, you know, I remember when I went into recovery, I, I said to somebody in my rehab, I go, I never even tried to stop before. <laughs> they look like it was a, something to be proud of, you know. <laughs> and my, she looked at me and she goes, Girl, you kind of look like you should have, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I did look like I should have. She was right. She was right, you know. But we get this twisted thinking sometimes that it's like, yeah, I hadn't even tried. Uh, but, but, but you know, but it wasn't even 100% sure. I had certainly tried to moderate. I'd have a lot of different patterns. I tried, you know, to get, wait three days in between runs and to only use on the weekend or, and only, or maybe – you do a run on the weekend and try to use half as much during the week. I mean, all kinds of crazy patterns that I tried that just failed, failed, failed. Or I could do them for a month or two and then I I couldn't anymore. And um, so it wasn't that I I never tried to moderate. it. I just had never really tried to stop. And and a lot of that was because I didn't believe that I could. You know, I, I really didn't believe that I could. Part of, I I honestly thought that because of the trauma um, that using was my best option i believed i was wrong but i believed that if i stopped using i was either going to commit suicide or i was going to end up institutionalized that's when i thought was going to happen that this using drugs was the best way to to manage my pain that there was no better option than this this was as good as it was going to get for me and so even when i went into rehab i wasn't committed to abstinence, I I wanted to figure out how to use less, how to do better. Not not that I wanted to keep using, but using less was sort of as far as my imagination could go. Um, And I think we, I think sometimes we don't really, we don't fully acknowledge that coming in to recovery ambivalence is common. You know, it's sometimes there's pressure for people to be you know, if they're not 100% committed 100% of the day, 100% of the week, 100% of the month, that somehow they're going to not succeed. Whereas from I think it's typical and common for people to have that initial ambivalence to go to be 100% committed, you know, for a week and then you have a day where you're just well maybe I can use or maybe I can't do it, you know, and to have that back and forth. I I think it's normal in early recovery and I know when I talk to newcomers, I encourage them to be honest about it and talk it out rather than presenting a sort of a false front of 100% commitment 100% of the time.
1: And that's why one day at a time, one
2: hour at a time, one minute at a
1: time, that's why that's a thing. Because, you know, get through the day, then get through the next day or get through the hour.
2: That's true. That's true. I mean, it's a, it's a good point that if you focus on the the one day it can be helpful because you're not having to say never yet. I mean, at some point for me, you know, became never right, but certainly not in the beginning, but even in those one days, you know, people are, are often have that, you know, Questioning, they have they have second thoughts. They're not 100 sure. I know sometimes when people are young, they think, "Well, am I really? You know, am I really? Do I really have a substance use disorder? Maybe I'm exaggerating." I mean, there's all those second guessings that happen, and I just I just want to make sure that um, the newcomers are comfortable openly talking about those feelings or those thoughts, so that second guessing, and not feeling like they have to have some kind of um, pretense of being more certain about their commitment than they actually
1: are. And I think it's important to have a place that you can be honest about that. Um, I've been in some rooms where people are like, are you allowed to do this? Yeah, you can do that, but don't talk about it. And it's like, secrets and shame are what got me here. So you think I I can do that and, and get better. So it's like, if you can't You know if it's not a place that you can be honest and talk through things and
2: it might not be the place for you exactly right exactly right and sometimes it really isn't the program it's individuals can get a little bit carried away with you know ideas that they sort of make up or (laughs) or they or they misinterpret. Um, And that can be problematic sometimes for newcomers. And so yes, I I really as you say I I hope the newcomers, if if you're not in a place where you can openly talk about what you're thinking and feeling about your recovery, then I I agree with you Ashley. Then you're not in, you know, there there's a better place for you and seek that out, someplace where you can do that. It's going to be much more helpful to you. um, and you're going to be able to have a a, a clearer path to it to your stronger recovery foundation if you're able to talk about these things up front you know I think it's common and so don't i hope people don't feel um i don't know like like somehow they're their commitment is less than it should be. I'm telling you, I walked in ambivalent. Okay, I, in fact, I also used five, uh, three times in my first five months. I used three times in my first five months, including twice in rehab. <laughs> um, but you know, three times in five months was a lot better. If I had been able to use three times in five months on a regular basis, I wouldn't have been in rehab. <laughs> um, but I have 28 years now. I used three times in the first five months, and 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 I walked in ambivalent, and now I have 28 years. So. I, I view my my pattern as actually fairly common,
1: yeah, what? I think that the research shows that that normally there's at least three occurrences, three to eight or something, isn't it? I'm not most people, it's not a one and done. If it is a one and done, you're very lucky. but or maybe not. I mean, I think that you learn something from each time. So like I said, no, there's no time wasted.
0: And I like what Mary Beth said about the, the forever thing, because I can, I can attest to that. Coming in at 23, thinking about I'm never going to use again, forever's a long time. I I definitely wasn't committed to I'm never going to use again when I first came in. I came in and, and well, I, I originally came in when I was 21, and I had two years of, of back and forth. And then at 23 was when I had this conversation with a guy, and I was like, all right, I'm going to give this recovery thing one year. I'll give it one solid year where I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to dabble. Like you got one year and here I am, you know, with, I'm coming up on eight years next month, but I, I didn't plan on it being forever. It was like, my life is not how I want it to be. I don't enjoy it. But I, what are the alternatives? You know, at that point I was at a place where it was like, I can either continue to do what I'm doing and be miserable or I can try this recovery thing and see what happens.
2: That's right. And, you know, the other thing that that makes me think about is how sometimes there is this message that um, recovery is a fight every day for the rest of your life. And the the reality is that's not true for most people. Right. For most of us, we get to a place of solid solid recovery. I, I mean, I haven't had. A serious um, struggle with with staying sober in 25 of my 28 years, and and it doesn't mean it couldn't happen, and it doesn't mean that I've forgotten, and it doesn't mean that I play around the edges because I don't. Um, I don't. You know, sometimes people will say to me, "Well, you have 28 years, can't you have a beer?" It's like, no, no, can't, (laughs) no, can't, because I I really believe that if I picked up anything, um, and let's say it was was a beer, I mean, I might get away with it the first time. I probably would, but. The problem would become that I I think I would start negotiating with myself right away, right? It would be well if I got away with it this one time. How often can I have a beer and it won't be trouble or that it's okay? And then it, then it's going to be well if I can have a beer, I could have pot. What if I just did meth on my birthday? <laughs> like with that, you know, I mean, this is this is where my mind would go. I know it, and so that's why I don't um, I don't play with it because the to me the. Look, it's nice that I became a judge. It sounds great. It was a professional accomplishment. I'm proud of it. But the biggest joy of recovery to me is the lack of chaos and the lack of obsession, right? Mm-hmm. My brain is not sucked up with all that chaotic misery or thoughts about when can I use and how am I going to use And I mean, that's just, it's all gone. My mind is free from all that. And I really don't ever want to put myself in that position. Again, this is a joy to be free of that.
0: Mm. And then we had a, a question from Paige. She said, how do you deal with stress? I have two years and I'm certain in my sobriety, but, uh, uh, but as of late I'm having issues with stress management.
2: So I will say, so remember I had child abuse of multiple forms. I actually mm. had two multisailant sexual assaults and there were other sexual assaults. Um, that we would call them that now because of the new idea that you actually have to consent, which idea wasn't really strong when I was a teenager. But um, so I had PTSD and severe anxiety and I didn't know it when I went into recovery. And so for me, it, the, the bigger challenge than getting my substance use disorder, what was harder and what took longer was getting my anxiety under control and um i really tended to catastrophize i had a very negative outlook i was always waiting for the world to explode in my face i always felt that any whatever i had accomplished let's say my first year of sobriety year and a half one little mistake and it was gonna i was gonna lose it all i was gonna blow up in my face if i made any little error and that is a a high stress attitude that, you know, is really not maintainable. Even though I was making good choices and moving forward, I wasn't even really enjoying my accomplishments the way I should have, because I was always worried about the next minute. My husband called me the, what about tomorrow girl? Like everything could be great now, but my mind was already on what could go wrong tomorrow. And so for me, I really had to address that PTSD and that anxiety and that stress. And so I did individual therapy um, with someone who had a uh, had uh, expertise in substance use disorder and in trauma. And then I did group therapy with a women's group that had trauma histories. And that was really, really helpful to me, provided me with a lot of um. A lot of new information about the many, many ways that the trauma had impacted me. I knew the high level ways, but I didn't see all the nuances of the impact until I was in that group therapy. And I also did medication for several years and I tried a bunch of meds and they didn't help. Um, And then, then finally, after not trying for a while, I was on a new one for a different reason and it helped me significantly. And I used that for several years. So, but it was a process. I mean, getting my, I still struggle with my anxiety. I say I'm 95% in, you know, recovered from that uh, PTSD. I still struggle with it, but I have, um, the episodes are much less frequent and they're much less intense and they last a lot less time. So I think it's common for, for a lot of people in sobriety. They find, oh, now that they're sober, they realize they have depression or they have anxiety a lot of people in recovery, women but men too have trauma histories like I did and they need to do that work in order to um, get their uh, emotions in balance in order to process the the harm that's been done to them so that they can move forward so that we can move forward and um, live our you know our best life. So it was a process for me. It was you know again incremental improvement step by step using different techniques, getting the getting the expertise that i needed to help me um, so that was that's what it was like for me it was a process
1: what was it like when you started becoming a judge or, or even just at first as a lawyer
2: You know, I mean, getting back into law school and especially back into Berkeley, it it really was a proud moment for me. I felt like I was, it was part of sort of reconnecting to my original self, sort of the woman I would have been if not for my substance use disorder. Um, So that it was, I was really, I I felt sort of a weight lifted that I was able to regain it. I mean, it was 16 years later by the time I got back to law school, but still I, I was able to regain it. And I got, you know, really good grades at Berkeley Law and I had a high-end job at a big law firm. And that was also a, a point of pride that I not only got in, but that my grades were high enough to land this job, this competitive job. Um, but on the other hand, I did that job for a couple of years. And yeah, it was challenging work um, and they paid me good money, but it was a job that you basically committed your life to, I say, I say they owned me, um, that paycheck, they bought all of my time basically. And so I had another decision point. It was sort of like I climbed up that mountain, um, from, from that temporary part-time low level admin job when I first got out of rehab to this high end, uh, legal job. But, um, as much as I felt proud about it, I really at that point realized I didn't want to keep doing it. And so it was that other inflection point of having to decide what's my life going to look like going forward. And it was hard. It was a hard decision because it's one of those things that once you leave a job like that, you're, you're not going to get it back. It was really a, a permanent decision. And it was, um, I grew up in a, a working class family and we didn't really have money. And so to give up a salary like that was, was, caused me some second thoughts, but I, I really was at that point in my recovery that I decided that I didn't want to keep living like that. It wasn't my priority. Those things were not my priority. I wanted more time for myself, more time to be with my husband, more time to, you know, take vacation to go to the ballet instead of having to give my ticket to my girlfriend. So my husband would take her. He started calling her his second wife because she went to everything that I couldn't go to. Um, and so it was, it was, you know, it was another decision point about that. Um, so yeah, it was a process and then becoming a judge was sort of a surprise. Once I became a government lawyer, I saw other people who did it. And so I thought, well, maybe, you know, I'll think about it. And, um, it's, it's not the kind of judge where you, you know, go to Congress and testify. It's uh, administrative logics. It's a testing process, a hard sort of multi-level, you know, you, take this part of the test, and they cut a whole bunch of people out, and you, it's multi-step. Um, but becoming a judge was, was a, a proud day, especially because I had started out as a teenage IV meth addict, um, and that's when I started thinking about the book, because it was really like, how the heck did I do this? How did I go from an abused child, a teenage IV meth addict, to a judge? And that was a time of great reflection, and that's when I started taking notes for my book.
1: Well, and I mean that's pretty amazing if you think about just life in general. You know, you said you started out; you're born to an unwed mother, and you lived with nuns at the beginning. You know, like how many stories are there that they become judges one day?
2: Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, and you know the other thing that I never expected, to be honest was my marriage i mean i've been with my husband for 38 years you know i met him my senior college and um he was there through the last years of my addiction he was actually ready to throw me out when i finally went to rehab um but i'll tell you almost that's almost the bigger surprise for me is to be in a happy functional supportive loving marriage of 38 years that That was something that never even crossed my mind existed on Earth, much less that I would get to have it, you know. So so it's the professionals uh, achievements are nice, but the life achievements are really what sustain me, you know. Um, And so it's those kind of things that are are more important. I'm, I'm proud of what I've done professionally, but on a day to day basis, you know, being a good wife, being a good sister, being a good friend. You know, I'm on the board for life ring and she recovers doing that service, you know, just and being and being part of a happy partnership with my husband. Those are the things that are the biggest, the greatest joys and the most sustenance in recovery for me.
1: So I have a question and you don't have to answer it. It might be very personal and I hope it's not. But um, was he the first person that never gave up on you? Like you thought he was about to, but
2: he didn't really, you know, I mean, he definitely was the, was the first person that was, was really supportive. I, I, I mean, I had a, I had a boyfriend in high school who was a nice guy, you know Um, I just, I wasn't uh, in any way ready for that. And, you know, we were young, Um, but yeah, he, don't get me wrong. I think my husband should have kicked me out years before he was ready to, <laughs> if he would have been smart. Like, what was he thinking? I don't know. I was out of control. You know? <laughs> But when we dated and we didn't live together, he thought I was like a weekend user. He didn't know until we moved in that I was really deep in my addiction. And so, and he stuck around, it was Six years later, after we moved in together, that he was getting really at the end of his rope. And when I was in rehab, he didn't know. We didn't, he didn't know if he was going to stick around. I mean, he would say that. You know how they have those family counseling sessions in rehab. But he would tell her, I don't know. I don't know. I, it might be too late. You know, so it was scary. But
0: mm.
2: once he saw that I was trying hard, you know, and that I was committed and that I was making the effort, he agreed to try, you know and so we went, th- we went to couples counseling, we did couples counseling seriously for several years. Um, and I would say it was probably uh, maybe in a year and a half of my sobriety that we that I was pretty sure we were going to stick together. In fact, when I had two years sober, that's when we booked the venue to get married, you know, because he we lived together, but he had not been foolish enough to get married to me when I was still using, so he had some sense. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, he's he's it's certainly, um, he sees me, he remembers things about me, he notices things, if I tell him I'm going to go do X, when I come home, he'll ask me how it went, you know, he is so excited for me, like with, with the book, you know, I mean, he's, he's just always sure that anything that I try to do, I can do, you know, he's just always there for me. And it is, it is the, an experience I did not have as a child. So it's something that I really do value very much. And I really do notice, I just, I love to see his face light up when I get to tell him something, you know, that, oh, I, I got the op-ed in the Wall Street Journal and, you know, he just looks so happy and so proud. It, it just warms my heart, you know, it really does. Yes. So yes, long, long story short. Yes, <laughs> it's, um, it's a great joy to be with him and to have that relationship.
1: And it's, it's hard because, you know, there's people that get taught how to be a wife and how to eat, but there's a lot of people that don't get taught how to do it. And sometimes it's hard to figure it out. And it's really amazing that you guys were able to figure it out together.
2: Yeah. I mean, what that also reminds me of is how much work I had to do in recovery. Like my interpersonal skills were horrible. I mean, I could be aggressive if I felt threatened or challenged or fear. You know, I I could I could strike out because that's what I grew up with. You know, and so it took me it took me a long time to really get first get my my words under control, and then to get my tone under control took even longer. Um, and so and to actually be able to listen and hear that was a process. I mean, you guys are seeing me now. And even now I have it a little bit, but it was work. I, I didn't know how to communicate. I didn't know how to listen. I didn't know how to be open to input. You know, I was always, um, I was defensive. I was, I was af- afraid if, you know, if you criticized me, I would lash back out. It's just what I grew up with. It took a long time. It took time for me to see that it was even a problem and then even once I recognized that it was a problem it took a long time and again that step-by-step incremental improvements um, to get it under control it took years for me to get that under control many years for me to get it full well fully under control is probably an exaggeration but <laughs> it was a process where I was better and better and better and the worst events happen less often but um but it took a long time to really be to the point that it would take a heck of a lot for me to react that way today um a heck of a lot yeah
1: and that's work It's and it doesn't stop, unfortunately. Well, fortunately and unfortunately, it's continual forever. Um, I mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe there's some people that find, you know, I've I've gotten to a point I'm good enough and I don't want to improve, but (laughs) every time I find something that I think I have fixed, I find five more things to fix. So I don't see my process ending anytime soon.
2: Yeah. I mean, I definitely still do have areas that I could improve on. I don't want to make it sound like it's a hundred percent. It's just that it's such a vast difference. Um, But, but on the other hand, I mean, other than the, the things like interpersonal, as far as like challenges of life, where I feel like I am now is that I have this, this calm, comfortable base which allows me to sort of spread my wings and take risks um, b- because I'm coming from that comfortable base. You know, I mean, for me to be open about my recovery, it was a, a big step. I, I, I really hadn't been public about it um, until after I retired as a judge for multiple reasons, but um, I had an op-ed in the wall street journal in 2020, it was called, I beat addiction without God. And I announced as I say, it's, you can't really be more open in your recovery. They turn out it's in the Wall Street Journal that you're a former meth addict. <laughs> um, but um, but that was a risk, right? And and that also reflected on my husband. We had that conversation. I said, if I come out, I'm coming out for us. You know what I mean? Like, so are you are you ready for that? People will ask questions about you, um, and so it. But it it was to the point that I felt like I could be of use because I I really wanted to talk. To, to be part of the conversation, to push the conversation forward about multiple paths to recovery. And I felt because I have so much time, 28 years of a secular recovery at this point, And um, because the judge gets attention, it's sort of people view it as um, they have, a, it has a positive resonance in society. And so I thought people might notice uh, what I had to say a little bit more. And so that I could be of use to people who couldn't always talk because People worry about legitimately worry about professional quality, um, you know, consequences or they just don't want to, which is everybody's right to choose. So but because I have that, you know, support at home, because I have that uh, basically calm life, it lets me take more risks, um, then I would be able to take if I was living, you know, already, if I, if I was already living on the edge, if I was already, you know, right up against the edge. So it's, it is really helpful to have, um, a good partner in life. If you can get a good partner in life, it's, it's useful.
1: <laughs> well, so you got a good partner, you went through law school, you became a judge, you started
2: writing the day you became a judge.
1: Where'd you go from there?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, when I became a judge, I remember they, I actually went to judge school for a month you know, We went to judge school when you're administrative law judge. And I started taking notes for the book then in 2014 and I didn't finish it until 2021 because I had a full-time job and I didn't know how to write a book. <laughs> so I had to figure it out, took classes and, you know, practiced and revised and revised and revised. Um, but I really wanted to do a couple things in the book. Uh, and again, the title does capture what I was trying to do. It's um, From Junkie to Judge, One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction. So I really cover in the book um, the uh, abuse and traumas that led me to start using alcohol at 12 and to start using meth at 16. I wanted to show why that decision made sense to me at the time. You know, it's that it wasn't out of the blue, that it wasn't for no reason, that there were root causes that led me to make that choice and to keep on making those bad choices about more and more drugs. Um, I, I don't mean to say that I think it was a choice forever, but in the beginning it was. It seemed like a good idea at the time. It seemed to help me with my pain. But also the data shows that people with trauma histories, sexual assault histories, child abuse histories, also who start using drugs at a young age, all are much more, much more likely to develop a substance use disorder. So I wanted that. How, how did it happen? Why did it happen? And then I do go through the chaos and misery of my addiction. But then I also go through about 30% of the book is my first three years of recovery. And I do feel sometimes like memoirs end with, I went to a few meetings and everything was great. And that's just not how recovery works. I wanted to give a more realistic picture. But also because I did it um, not the most common path, which most common path is the 12-step path. I did it the secular way and I did it an individual way. I thought it was important to show what that looks like and how I did it. Not that someone else's, path would be identical to mine, but just as an example of um, a a way of thinking. And I do in the back of the book have guidelines and checklists to help people think through about what um, their program might look like, what might work for them. It's sort of an analytical tool. And so I wanted to include that as well, just to lay out something of a structure that people could think through as to what might be the first right steps for them.
1: I think that's awesome because a lot of times you just don't know when you're starting out.
2: You you have no clue what to do. That's true. That's and you know it's funny because sometimes people say, "Well, how do I know which of the many like peer support cr- programs are going to be a good fit?" And I do hope it's clear that I have no um, concerns about 12 steps if it's a good fit for someone. And yay! You know, if those are your people, I'm happy for you. Um, but what, when people, when I, like when I talk at recovery houses, they'll say, well, how do I know what's right for me? And my answer to that really is I think if you, if you read up on the different peer support options, let's say you already read up on the top five or six, I really think that one or two of them, they're going to be attracted to you. It's going to sound like my people are going to be at that meeting. You know, that philosophy is consistent with my worldview. That meeting format sounds like I would enjoy it. So I think if you look at them, you're going to find that one or two are more attracted to you than the others. And so my recommendation is always start there. You know, go to where... Um, it looks like you're going to fit in, and then of course, always as I did, keep your mind open. Is it working? Do you do you want to add in another program? You don't actually have to do any one program. You can do more than one at the same time. That's what I did, and that's what more people do today. Um, I'm on the board for She Recovers Foundation as well, which is a multiple paths program. They support all paths and. Um, There's a lot of different options. So I would look, you know, look at them and see where you feel like you're going to fit in, where you feel like the philosophy is consistent with how you think. But always keep your mind open. And sometimes what works for you, let's say the first year, maybe at that point, you want to add something else in. I mean, our recovery needs change over time. How we think about recovery changes over time, especially in the beginning. What we think will work for us can change over time. Uh, So it's, you know, it's good to, to, to start out in one place, but always know that if you reevaluate and you want to change something up, look at the other options again and see what you might want to add in to strengthen your recovery.
1: Yeah. I think that's a great point to say because you grow and you change and who you are five years down the road, isn't who you came in as and what worked then might not work today and Sometimes you outgrow things or you outgrow groups. You don't want to be, you know, that's one of the things that I say, I don't want to be the smartest person in the room that I'm in the wrong room. And, you know, like some people might want to be, but if you're going to continually grow, you can't be, you know, the person with the most time or the person, you know, it's, and I'm not saying that that's bad, but if you're continually wanting to learn, You know, if everyone in the room's at three years, you know, how do you get past that? Right, right. And I mean, like, for me, my pathway was different when I started. The first two years was a completely different pathway than what I use today. And I don't even know that what I use today would be considered. It's the Ashley way. People joke, you know, like it's. Because I do so many different things Um, and I just have to change it up and do what works for me. And, you know, like she recovers is a. I went to the the event in Miami and, you know, that's a great there. The meetings were structured completely different than any other meetings that I've ever been to. And it was great seeing women support women because that's something you don't see in the real world every
2: day. Yeah. And she recovers is is different than some of the other groups because it's not just for substance use disorder recovery. Right. It's also for recovery from trauma, mental health or other behavioral disorders like gambling or eating grief. I mean, the mantra is we're all in recovery from something. But the reality is that most women and most men in recovery have more than just their substance use disorder to, to work on. Or that's, um, that's an area of, uh, of, of concern, something that they, they want to um, repair. And so when she recovers, it's all in one place. And so it's got sort of that unique niche um, but a lot of She Recovers members also do 12 steps. A lot of life members also do SMART or also do Women for Sobriety. It's more common what you're doing um, now, Ashley, and what I did, which is to mix it up. And I think that's a real positive change over my 28 years in recovery, is that more people are open to trying out different modalities, doing two or more programs at the same time. Some people like the structure of 12 steps in the beginning, but then they want to check out other options. And so, you know, whatever whatever you think you will strengthen your sobriety, to me, that's what you need to do. And you're the only person who knows what's gonna work for you. And when um, when it's time to try something new or take a, take another step. And that's, that's a good thing. I mean, that's a good thing. The, the good news is there are a lot of options. And the other reality is that, you know, a lot of people don't do support peer support meetings forever. I after the three years, I, I think between year three and year twenty four, twenty five, when I joined the life ring board, I've been in those 15 years. I went to a dozen meetings, maybe 20. Um, and so it's you know, but I was still in therapy and I was still doing other areas of growth because that's what I needed. So um, it's OK to uh, and I think it's important to do the analysis about, you know, every few months, where am I, is what I'm doing working? Is it, is there something that I'd like to try that I think could strengthen my, either my substance use recovery or my mental health recovery or my trauma recovery, or just my professional growth or, you know, new challenges of life, all of that. It's good to evaluate it uh, fairly regularly. Um, so that you can be pushing yourself forward in the right way, in the way that you really would like to go. Well, and I think there was something you said
1: a while back that I didn't comment on, but it—it's become glaringly obvious to me. The more stories I hear, and the 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 more rooms I sit in, that I've heard it probably five times in the last month, is people said that they used. Because that's what kept them alive. Like their option, like you said before, that they would have wanted to end their life if it wasn't for that was and I mean there was a long time for me, like where I I was felt like I was dead, I was just surviving. But it's there's that thing that whatever that is that make people need I don't know how to verbalize this, but whatever that is that makes you think that that substance is keeping you alive, that needs to be addressed if you're going to be able to ever truly live. And that's the whole point of finding recovery so that you're free and you can truly live. So if you don't ever address that reason that you needed to just survive, how do you ever live?
2: yeah and you know i think it's it's interesting too when i went into recovery they actually didn't want to treat us um with medication for mental health until we were sober for 90 days or something because they said we have we don't know where you are if you even need these meds but now there's a much more emphasis on um simultaneously addressing mental health and substance use disorder and i think the data shows that that's the better approach The other thought I have when you say that is that um, I knew that my trauma was the impetus of my substance use disorder. And that was true. But what I hadn't realized was that my substance use disorder had become my number one problem. (laughs) You know, and that was a surprise to me when I went into recovery to find out. Yes, it's true that it started because of the trauma, but it has now surpassed. The trauma as my number one problem, and I, I was not able to heal from the trauma until I got sober. I actually went to therapy a couple times when I was still using, and I couldn't make any progress. I mean, it wasn't connected to my emotions. I actually didn't have a um, an accurate sense of my own history. I didn't. I couldn't really appreciate the the depth and and uh, severity of everything that had happened to me. But mostly, how can you heal from trauma if you've got a drug between you and your true feelings? It's, impo- it's impossible. And so I really, I, it was for me, I, I needed sobriety to be able to really make progress on my mental health. But I, I'm, glad, I'm glad that today there's more analysis and um, evaluation of people early in the process to see what mental health support they need while they're in their early sobriety.
1: Yeah. And sometimes you need medication at the beginning. Like you said, you're, you're on medication early, Um, especially with opiate use disorder. You know, your, your brain doesn't make the chemicals that make you happy, you know, for a year after. Um, So it's like depression medicine or, you know, medication assisted therapy. Those might be the best options for you at that time. But I, 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 I was on depression medicine for the first two years I was in recovery, and I'm I'm no longer on it now, but I don't know that I would have made it without that.
2: Yeah, I mean, the medication-assisted treatment for alcohol use disorder and opioid use disorder is, it, it, that's an amazing step forward, you know, and the data is so strong on, on the odds of success with that on, you know, abstinence, even if it's not perfect, but, you know, if abstinence overall and significantly reduced use. I mean, unfortunately for stimulants, they're still trying to find something that works well, but there are some studies going on. There are some larger studies on a couple of drugs for stimulants um, to help with, t- to do the same kind of replacement that that it does for um, alcohol and opiates. But it is, I, I, it's really amazing how, how strong the data is about the success rates with medication-assisted treatment. I, I think people are, I think particularly I think about alcohol because in a way alcohol has this, an additional challenge because it's everywhere in the world. I mean, people weren't, you know, at a party handing me meth, right? They were trying to give me a drink. And so, I mean, I can't drink. Don't get me wrong. I don't drink. Um, When, when I got sober, I made my husband move the alcohol out of the house for two years because I didn't want that impulse relapse I didn't want you know if I had to get my car and go to the 711 at least there was a gap in time um, so it's not that I drink but alcohol does have that extra challenge that you're faced with it you know constantly out in the real world and on television with commercials and things and so having the medication like it's it's a real advantage for people that um, they have the, they have alcohol use disorder and opiate use disorders yeah and well,
1: I think the studies show that Those are good for like the first two years. They're they're the best. But then you still have to find something that works for long term. Because I think that the studies that I've shown, it drops off severely after two years. So it's, it gives you those two years to get stable and, you know, find something that works. Find your people, whatever, whoever your people are, whatever pathway is your pathway, you know.
2: Yeah, and in two years, your brain changes a lot. I mean, I've seen brain scans of people like that that are on, you know, meth or, or alcohol at, at the time, and then three months sober, six months sober, a year, two years. It's astonishing um, how much repair your brain has to go through during those first two years. So, getting someone through two years is like a major accomplishment, you know, it's not. Yeah, you're right. It's it's good to be simultaneously working on the other aspects of it, so that when you get to that point, you're you, you're strong in other ways as well. But as we all know, it's those early parts that are, are the hardest. So some so when I went from like 27 to 28, and people were like, "Yay, happy birthday!" I'm like, "Come on, 27 to 28 is not the hard part. Okay, that's just not the." It's those first two two to three years where you're really getting that foundation, where your brain is rewiring, where you're trying to develop new positive habits in all areas of your life. But also, I think those years are hard because we're having to face what we've destroyed, right? I mean, it's hard to look at your life and where you are and what you've lost and what you yourself, you know, what havoc you yourself created. That's um, painful, And it makes it really a challenge. And usually, hopefully, if you're doing good work, by two or three years, you've at least made forward progress, and you can. um, And some of those feelings, you've been able to uh, to address, or to at least they're they're not as strong as they were in the beginning because you see that you're on a forward, positive forward path. Yeah,
1: and I think there's like an. Just this is just my opinion, so don't you know, take any it with a grain of salt, you know. But I think that there. There's still so much stigma, and there shouldn't be for a medicated assisted therapy. So that it's harder for them like, to find something during, you know, because people aren't as accepting. And I, I think that there's nothing wrong with being on medicated assisted therapy for the rest of your, your life if you're able to live, you know, recovery. Abstinence isn't the definition of recovery
2: yeah well and how do you define abstinence i mean to me if you're on a medication that's prescribed for a medical condition that you have and you take it as prescribed that to me that's abstinence you know that's abstinence and but you're right i mean people the 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 percentage of people that have access to medication assisted treatment is ridiculously low considering especially considering how effective it is And then people do get into this thing like, well, methadone, it's, you know, you're just high on another drug, but the reality is maintenance methadone, if it's done right, isn't getting you high. (laughs) You know, it's just making you level. I have a girlfriend who's been on maintenance methadone for 12 years and she was not able to stay off. She tried abstinence without, you know, methadone from heroin for years and she could not succeed on a maintenance level dose of methadone. She's got a job. She's got a, got a promotion. She's able to be a good mother. You know, she's able to participate. And when you talk to her, she's not high. I mean, I know what opiate high looks like. (laughs) She's not high. It's just, she's just brought up to a a normal, stable level. Her brain's not producing what it needs to produce. She's tried to see if it will ever, I mean, some people, it's like, with mental health meds, for some of us, you're on mental health meds for a while. I was on them for three and a half years, and then I was able to go off and I didn't get worse again. Well, I tried to get all, go off for two years and I did get worse. And so went back on and I was on for a year and a half, and then I went off and I didn't get worse. But some people have to take mental health meds forever because their brain never recovers. It never repairs. And that's how I view medication-assisted treatment. You know, um, it's the same thing. If you, if you can get off it later, and I know most people try, that's great. But if you can't, it's certainly way better than the alternative, you
0: know? I agree. I
1: just need to, you know, look at medication-assisted therapy just the same way we do depression medicine or Tylenol for a headache or whatever. You know, like, to, to make it so that they can't have a place to recover because of what they need to recover is ridiculous. And that's why I think that two-year thing is such a big, you know, there's a, a really, like, it's in the 90s with when they reach two years, and then it, like, drops off to, like, 30%. And I really think that it's because there's just not a lot of recovery groups that are as welcoming as they should be
2: yeah and i will say that um in life ring our definition of abstinence includes a medication that is medically indicated and taken as prescribed and that can include things like some people do cannabis for anxiety right and if the doctor tells them that that's okay you know this that's between them and their doctor we don't get in the middle of that people sometimes have to be on pain meds for physical conditions we don't get it we, we don't get in the middle it's not our job we can't make that assessment um, and so life ring is considers abstinence as long as you're taking it as prescribed, you know, it's for a, a legitimate medical need that counts as abstinence and she recovers is a multiple paths that she recovers doesn't even require you to commit to abstinence. It's your decision as to what, what you want to do. And, um, and so there are groups that are open to that. If any of your, um, listeners are in that situation, and have had problems finding them. They do exist.
1: I always think that that's good to point out because sometimes especially rural areas they don't always have the options or if you don't know even though there's the internet if you don't know where to look sometimes or if you just have your you know your phone or you're just starting out and everything seems so big and you don't realize that there's so much out there and there's people that'll support you I think it's important to point out
2: yeah. I mean, my goal is always just to talk about, to, to inform people they have choices so they can find what's going to work for them. You know, all I, 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 mean, look, I'm on the board for life and come to life. And I don't really care if life is not the right fit for you, go where your people are. I, I just want people to know that they have choices so that they can find the right fit and increase their odds of success. That really is my primary goal on when I talk. Yeah.
1: Yeah, me too. I think we all are. Brett's, Brett too, right? Yes, no want to speak for you.
0: <laughs> no, you're fun. You're fun. I agree.
1: And we learn more. Like, m- what I think today is completely different than when I first got into recovery. I, I was like the yes. worst when I like first got in. You know, they're telling me about naloxone and Narcan, and I was like, "Well, are we giving them permission to use by giving like, but." I'm going to tell you that today, because of my judgments and where I was, I can talk to people and I understand what I need to say and what what they're like things that they might be thinking, but they don't want to say because it comes out a little judgy, you know, Mm -hmm. and so I really believe that even though I was judgy when I started, I think that that helps me today be able to help other people be less judgy. And I've opened to, you know, I fully admit I was judgy.
2: Yeah, I mean, so one of the things I do uh, acknowledge is that I actually used harm reduction in my um, last five years of using, uh, I used the needle exchange uh, in San Francisco and the needle, it wasn't legal. I, it, it was tolerated. So, I mean, they would, they had a the needle exchange and um, I'm pretty sure it was a private group that was doing it, but there was like an 800 number. You had to call and find out where they're going to be. And, <laughs> but the cops would just drive by, like they would just, they would just drive by. They weren't enforcing anything. Um, and, and that was helpful to me because I think it's A big part of the reason why when i got sober i i didn't have hiv i i didn't have hep c you know i i never had any of the blood-borne diseases um and i know that it can be counterintuitive for people to think about giving people you know syringes that somehow you're encouraging them to use or why should we be doing this in in San Francisco in, in the '90s, the syringe exchanges started because of HIV. It was viewed as um, well. It's, this is the better of two options, right? Either people are going to get HIV, or we're, we're going to give them easy access to um, syringes. Um, but but today, it's just it's also just part of the overall harm reduction movement. But I understand why people have concerns. I don't. I, I, I don't want to dismiss those concerns. I think you're right, Ashley, to take it as, you know, how can I explain it to you, provide the information now that I've thought about it, now that I have more data, now that I understand the benefits, let me be respectful about your concerns, you know, your understandable concerns, but explain why, I, you know, you think it's still a good idea and why the data shows that it's actually a helpful idea.
1: And I think a big thing too is that, even though when I first came in, I was against a lot of this stuff. I still did the research. Like, you know, people told me, well, if somebody's not having an overdose, if you give them naloxone, it's not going to hurt them. I didn't believe that, but I didn't just say, I don't believe you and stop there. I did the research and I found out what they were saying was true. It wasn't going to make them sicker. And so what they were saying was true. And so I came back and listened a little bit more because they had proven what they, they weren't selling me lies, you know? And, you know, then it was like, well, we need to have naloxone at all the schools and all. I'm like, wait, you're going to give this medication to under kids that are under 18. What? Like, but then now I'm a full firm believer. It needs to be in every high school, every college, every dorm room. And I train people how to use it. And I, you know so just be open to what you believe is not always the truth too
0: well, isn't that the beauty of recovery is that we get to learn these new ideas and our ideas can change i mean i think even just hearing mary beth's story and and so many other people's stories i think we come into recovery with a lot of limiting beliefs about ourselves and what we can do And I mean, that's that's uh, to me, that's one of the core things about recovery is that I'm able to change my ideas and grow and and try different things. And like we've discussed tonight, if I'm in a program that's not working for me, I, I have freedom to try something different. I can I can try a life ring or a smart recovery or I can do harm reduction or whatever it is. That's that's part of the beauty of recovery is that we can grow and change and try different things and and learn new perspectives because when I first got into recovery I didn't think I could be anything I didn't think that I could be successful I didn't think I could have a family I didn't think I was able to do any of those things because I had those beliefs about myself that I was worthless and that I was you know destined to be an addict for the rest of my life and that's kind of the whole thing about recovery is the hope and being able to learn and and See new things and and gain new perspectives.
2: Yeah, and that's I mean, and it's great that you that you're able to do that. And, and I think it's it's why people talk about recovery versus sobriety, right? I mean, don't get me wrong, getting sober is really if it, was it really important. Um, but it but it's it is an opportunity to start working on all aspects of ourselves and to really mm-hmm. change our mindset in so many ways. And, and that could have. I mean, for me in recovery, once I got sober after about the first year and a half, I started talking about I wanted big R recovery, right? I wanted to really be be in recovery for all of it, not just for my substance use disorder. And again, there's so much overlap for people that enter recovery for substance use disorder. So many of us have trauma histories or other bad experiences, um, neglect, uh, I don't know, loss of a parent, just a a lot of different types of, of harms that if we stop the substances, um, it's an opportunity to start working on things that when we were young, when they initially happened, we didn't have the tools to deal with and probably we didn't have the good adult guidance to help us through that process. But now we really have to sort of um, move, figure out how to move ourselves through the process. And, and when I say myself, you know, that, uh, you know, my recovery, I did it my way. I, I never mean I did it alone, right? I, I really view self-empowered recovery as including asking for the help that you need. You know, I did A lot of meetings, my first few years of all types—twelve steps, and then Women for Sobriety and SOS and Rational Recovery. I did individual therapy, group therapy, couples counseling, medication. You know, it's it's um, it was a process of of addressing all the areas that needed to be healed, and then just also paying attention to my own poor behavior at at many times and trying to figure out how to improve that. So, it's a multi um, it's a multi pronged attack to really try to find your way to your true self to who you were meant to be, but also who do I want to be? You know, I, I remember snapping at people and then, and then at some point it was like, I don't want to be her. You know, I don't want to behave like that. I am not happy with myself when I behave like that. So I need to figure out how to move past it. And that's sort of the whole process of recovery. What, what, What what about our life? What about our pain? What about our behavior? Are we not happy with? And work on that. You know, prioritize it, set goals, step by step, always step by step, um, and move toward who you want to become. And often that's partly who you really originally were meant to be. Yeah, and
1: I think... We don't know who we're meant to be until we get there, right?
2: Yeah, although I did spend time in early recovery thinking about who I was initially. You know, I really thought back to who I was as a girl before the worst of the trauma happened, before I picked up substances. Like, I was always smart. I was always verbal. I was always outgoing. You know, but I had lost those things. I, I had become so disconnected from myself. I wasn't any of those things when I walked into recovery. And so part of it was trying to remember who I was, partly just to, to sort of as a goal, but also to remind myself that inside of me are those things. I, I can use them to my advantage. I can use my, you know, intellect to my advantage. I can use my um, out, outgoing personality in general to my advantage, if I can reconnect to that, to my original um, self, my original personality, my original skills, that will help me in my recovery. Um, Those things were already there. I just lost the connection to them. I could rebuild the connection and that's going to help me move forward.
1: Well, I think the question, the next question I have to ask is, how did it feel to write a book, you know? (laughs)
2: Yeah, I mean, it was a long process, but um, as I said, I started taking notes in 2014 when I became a judge and I finished it in 2021, but it it was, it was a multi-tiered process. So there was the, the, the writing side and I was a good writer. I was a really good legal writer. I was a good business writer, but I had never written a book and memoir is really written like a novel has to be written immersive in scene. You know, you want the reader to feel it as it happened, the emotional connections. And I I hadn't written anything like that in my life. And so I had to learn how to do it. And that was an intellectual challenge that was sort of fun, you know, to I took classes and then I tried to apply what I learned and then I would revise it. I was in critique groups where we read each other's work. But um, it's memoir, so there was also the emotional side of it, really reevaluating what had happened to me, um, thinking about it in a way I hadn't really thought about it in a long time, remembering exactly what happened and and how it impacted me, because that's part of what memoir is, is explaining not just what happened, but how did that impact my life at the time, how do I interpret it now, what patterns do I see that need to be addressed and so that was an emotional that was emotional work to be looking deeply inside and looking at these events with a very close eye and so that was some you know upsetting at times it was also a reminder of how lucky I am to be alive I had so many experiences where I I could easily have been killed Um, and so there was that appreciation that I really am lucky to still be here. But also I really I really did reconnect to myself to some of my strengths like that that multi assailant rape when I was in college that was that was bad. It was three people less than six hours and um, and I really thought they were going to murder me. and I, I still believe that I was at high risk of being killed. but I I was able to, disconnect emotionally and think about how to handle these men, you know, what can I do to increase my odds of success? I knew I didn't have control, but I could have done things to make my odds worse or to make my odds better. And I was able to do things to make my odds better, but there was one part of it that I second guessed my decision for years about whether I, could have gotten away at a certain point. And it's in the book. You understand in the book and it ate at me and ate at me. But when I went back to revisit it in writing the book um, and I had done this in therapy too, but it was really the reminder that I needed to trust that Mary Beth in that moment, that's, she was making the, the assessment of all the many, many factors that had to be considered in deciding whether to make that effort to get away. And I decided at the time that it it was impossible. I I wasn't going to be able to do it. And so I didn't try, but that didn't try ate at me. And so the book allowed me to again, revisit it and other similar things and really remind myself about about the strengths that I did have, the the good choices that I did make, but also to be proud of, um, of what I did.
1: All right. There's a question. As a judge, did you help people without letting them know that you had substance issues and point them in the right direction while you were on the stand to help them better themselves?
2: Yeah. So I definitely did not come out as having a substance use disorder while I was working. Not to the pe- not to the people who appeared for me. I actually, when I was a judge, joined the board for LifeRing, and I had to run that through the ethics people um, to get approval to do it like as an outside activity. That was the first time I had ever told an employer that I was in recovery was when I filled out that outside activity form. And my my um, the chief judge in my office read it, and the chief judge in the whole region read it. And so it was really a little bit nerve wracking to be disclosing that. But I didn't say that I was a meth addict. I just said that I had, I think, 24 years of sobriety at that point. And I, you know, here's what I'm what I'm gonna do it on the board for life ring. And I'm guessing they thought alcohol, but nobody ever asked, and I didn't tell them. Um, but certainly the people that appeared before me, it would be inappropriate for me to disclose a personal piece of information like that. Um, but I was an administrative law judge and Part of the law I had to apply did involve substance use disorder. And so for cases where the person appearing before me had a substance use disorder, I had there were certain questions I had to ask to get the information I needed to apply the law I was required to apply. So I wasn't, it wasn't my role to be able to make suggestions. And also, I don't know what's best for them as far as treatment or, you know, they're they're an individual. Um, but certainly i did my best to be respectful and non-judgmental about their substance use disorder i got the information that i needed i didn't you know go around or beat them up about it or um, make unfounded inferences like they couldn't possibly be telling me the truth because they were struggling with their addiction or any of those things i I got what I needed to apply the law, and I and I moved on. But that was really my role when I was dealing with um, with with people who were appearing before me who had substance use disorders.
1: Well, I think what we forget too is judges see a lot of things, and if you know, sometimes when you've seen a lot, you know it's traumatic for you too. And you become jaded. Not, not that you did, but I'm just saying in general, sometimes we think judges aren't always empathetic or, you know, they have to follow the law. Number one, that's their job. And they see a lot of things that most
2: people don't see every day. It's true. But I do think that judges could be better trained on substance use disorder. Um, I think that, um, they can be better trained as far as what what it really is about how difficult it can be to overcome, but also about what it doesn't mean. You know, um, it doesn't mean that the person is incapable of telling the truth. It doesn't mean that the person couldn't be, uh, you know, uh, um, th- that they can't also have a, a legitimate other issue. One of the one of the things that appeared before me not infrequently with someone who had a mental health, um, uh, diagnosis, like let's say a psychotic in particular diagnosis, but they were also using meth sometimes. And so I had to try to disentangle what their symptoms were from, um, from the meth, or if they were sober from the meth, what symptoms would remain? And that that was complicated. And they, you know, they told us to do that, but we didn't always have the best training about how to do it or the best guidance about how to do it. I mean, there there was there there was a way to do it. It's not that we didn't know how to do it, but um, but people who don't understand substance use disorder can sometimes the waters get muddy as far as how they look at it. I just think they could be better trained and also better trained as far as how it is often a struggle that the fact that someone had a relapse doesn't mean they weren't committed to their sobriety or that they weren't trying, that we shouldn't make a, a negative inference as far as their motivation goes just because they were struggling with attaining abstinence. I don't think a lot of judges understand that concept.
1: Yeah. And there's a lot of self medicating for, like you said, other mental health. Diagnosis is bipolar, it's a big one, schizophrenia. And, and then there's substances that make those things worse. I mean, it's come out more and more that marijuana with psychosis is causing a lot of problems. And, and it wasn't, you know, it's now that it's stronger in medical grade, it's, it's causing more and more. And that wasn't something that was publicized a lot back in the day or that people knew
2: that's true and also they weren't letting people do research on cannabis right and so how do you get data if you want to allow people to do research <laughs> well now they're doing some research and they're figuring out what actually are the consequences of long-term um, cannabis use and that's information that people need so they can make an informed decision about what whether they want to use it or how often they want to use it or all those things but Yeah, it was sort of anecdotal that some people were having psychotic um, uh, symptoms from from cannabis use, but for the majority of people, that's not true. And so I I think a lot of people didn't didn't accept that as being accurate, but it turns out that it is. I I will say also, I, 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 I had hallucinations from meth, but I wasn't one of those people that were highly paranoid on meth. But I did not realize that actually a significant proportion, I think it's around 15% of people who have long-term meth use struggle with psychotic symptoms for years after they get sober. And so that's something, you know, I think a, a new understanding that can really be important in helping people in their recovery um, to address that mental health challenge. Even if they're sober, sometimes the psychotic symptoms don't completely go away or they don't go away for a, a few years. And that's, that's important information to help them manage the process.
1: And I think, too, there's a lot more information about, like, methodologies. It used to be that it was not so much a physical dependence. They thought that it was a mental dependence. And so if you just could mentally get off of it. But now they're realizing that it does tremendous damage long-term and is even harder for your brain to
2: regulate the opiate use disorder. It's a good point. I, I mean, I remember one time somebody told me I wasn't a real addict because I didn't have like withdrawals like you do from heroin or alcohol, and it's like, yeah, I'm sorry, meth He's an addictive substance. I don't know what you're trying to say to me, person. You know, um, but but it was, it was we were sort of like, well, he's not it's not as bad, you know, because you don't have that physical the physical symptoms. I will say that one of my shocks in rehab was how bad alcohol is. I mean, I sort of thought in my mind, my you know, meth uh, uh, use disorder mind that alcohol was like a lighter weight drug, and then I went to rehab. And the women who were had alcohol use disorder, they had some of the worst physical symptoms. They were having seizures. They, you know, they their liver was they were having a lot of problems. I mean, alcohol is vicious, a vicious, vicious drug on your body. And I think America underappreciates the severity of alcohol use disorder or the risk of using alcohol. I mean, there's a lot of data now coming out, how even modern drinking has an you know increases your cancer risk for alcohol all those other things sometimes in interviews people the interviewer wants me to say that like that pot is the entryway drug and it's and it's you know a a terrible drug for that reason and I, i point out that for me and many of my generation alcohol was the first drug that we used but also even though Um, pot does weed does have some physical uh impacts for long-term use that they're still figuring out. Alcohol is is worse. I mean, if you're going to pick one for your what's worse for your body between alcohol and cannabis, it's going to be alcohol. (laughs) Um, and I just think people don't they don't assess the risk accurately as far as alcohol goes. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, there's only two that can withdraws can kill you-like two classifications: alcohol and benzos. Those are the two. So, everything else you know you might want to die from the withdrawals from opiates or you know any of the other ones but the only two that withdraws can actually kill you that you really need to be in detox for benzos and alcohol
0: and i saw i saw uh, i'm getting tongue-tied i saw a statistic this past week that i believe it was uh, men in the united states between ages i believe it was 30 and 55 one out of every five deaths is attributed to alcohol.
2: Yeah, it's shocking. I mean, it wasn't one of the, the ideas that's more modern, because, you know, I've been around for 28 years now, It um, is that, you know, substance use disorder is, is on a scale, right? Now we talk about severe or moderate or mild. And I think that's really helpful in thinking about alcohol. But also, I like the new idea how even if you don't check the box for a substance use disorder, that doesn't mean you might not be using the substance in a way that is not in your best interest. You know, I mean, I think about with alcohol, and don't get me wrong, a lot of people use alcohol on a very limited basis, and I I don't mean to imply like anti-alcohol Mary Beth, but, but the reality is that sometimes people use alcohol or cannabis or other drugs for things like conflict avoidance. You know, they, um, handling feelings when really you would be better off figuring out how to address the conflict or how to resolve your feelings or figure out what's going on. So you don't have to have a substance use disorder in order to be using a substance in a way that is actually not in your own best interest.
1: Yeah. And there's been so many groups that are like starting to band together to try to do that, like Sober Force, and which is cool because in the workplace, You know, alcohol is everywhere. And so having these groups that are sober curious or, you know, it's great. It's a great option so that if you don't feel like that's you don't have to feel the peer pressure to engage in those if you don't want to
2: yeah and it's nice that more often they're having like real non-alcoholic drinks beyond just water and a coke you know (laughs) you know some places like like work events are having fancy non-alcoholic drinks so you get to have something fun and walk around with a pretty glass and you know be like everybody else and so those kind of things they're still not where hopefully they'll be in the future but they're definitely there's a movement forward in that that and that's really fabulous
1: oh and the worst part is when you you go to an event and cocktails are free but you have to pay for non alcoholic drinks that's what's really that's what gets me (laughs) make me pay 525 for my diet coke
2: yeah true true uh
1: you would think that it would be the opposite because alcohol is more expensive but no Brett's back.
0: I'm back. Sorry. I, I had to take a quick restroom break. I I finished my water.
1: I need to drink more water. That'll be one of my new goals that I'll attempt at some point. So
0: less diet coke.
1: I um, yeah, yeah, less. I'm not gonna give it up completely yet,
0: but I'll work that way eventually. It's not forever.
1: So when does the book come out? Soon. So-
2: Thank you. Um, So again, the book is um, From to Judge, One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction. And it is available for pre-order now on Amazon and all the usual sites. If you're planning on buying it, please do pre-order it. There's reasons that that helps me out. Um, And then it it will ship in January. So it will ship out the door at a ship as in the physical copy or the, um, you can order the, the ebook, the Kindle or other ebook and the audiobook is being, um, uh, created as we speak. And so it's, you can't order it quite yet, but it will be available by January. But right now the, the ebook and the hard copy, uh, the hard copy paperback, <laughs> the physical copy, um, are available pre-order on Amazon and all the usual sites shipping in January.
1: That's awesome. And I think it's a great thing to point out because we don't know this a lot of times that when you buy a book on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or whatever, if you leave a review, it really, really helps push the book forward when people see it. And so, you know, if you appreciate that the person takes the time to write this book, really write them a review because it really does help.
2: That's true. Thank you for that.
1: And the pre-orders help too because you have to have a certain amount to even be in the front of anything to be considered a bestseller of any category. And if you don't get there with the pre-sales, it's really hard later. So if you you know if you're interested in in the book, really do pre-order and write a review when you read it.
2: Yes, thank you. That's exactly right. Thank you very much.
1: <laughs> yeah, I can say it because I'm not writing the book, so it doesn't sound like I'm like, Yes,
0: you're... Not, yet. <laughs> not yet, Ashley.
1: Yeah, somebody's gonna, when I write the book, my book one day, somebody'll have to say that for me.
2: Right. <laughs> I'll remember, I'll be happy to do it for you. <laughs> thank you.
1: Well, thank you so much for coming today. I love it. It's a different perspective and you know, we need to hear everyone's stories and all the different stories.
2: Well, I mean, I really appreciate the conversation and having a chance to talk to your audience. Um, It's been, it's been great fun. I I really do thank you very much.
0: Yeah, it was, it was great. And I was having a conversation with another, with another recovery podcast host the other day, and we were talking about what are some of the ways that we can break the stigma. And we were talking about having people that are professionals, not just professionals, but people that we perceive as being in these big, fancy roles and having people say, I'm in recovery. And I think you're doing that by the book and by sharing your story and saying, look, I've, I'm in recovery and I was a judge like that's that's huge.
2: Yes. And that it really is one of the reasons I decided to do it. I just feel, you know, I I, I want to be as open as I can about it. And to say, you know, I mean, part of it is sometimes people think that people with an IV meth addiction can't get well, you know, there's this, this of belief, like those people are hopeless. It's too late for them. And I really do want to be part of saying, no, it's not, <laughs> not too late for them because <laughs> I was that person. And then, you know, once I got sober, I was able to accomplish many things professionally and even more important personally. So, Um, Let's don't give up on anyone. It's everyone has, you know, camera cover. I don't care how bad their substance use disorder is. I don't care how they consume their drug or what drug they consume. They are worthy of our efforts to try to help them get well.
1: (laughs) It's, It's so much cheaper to help somebody get well and then them contribute to society than to give up and just allow it to continue. That's we want people to get better. Well, thank you again for coming. I'm so glad you came. And if anyone that is watching, there's hope. there's always hope.
0: Mm, always. Awesome. Awesome. Let's uh, let's close out the show.
1: Yes I can eat dinner.
0: <laughs> yeah me too. she does ashley does love her books that's true i'm a reader it is true ashley loves the books all right well thank you to everyone that tuned in tonight and to the people that are watching this after the live has ended thank you so much if you guys are watching us on youtube please be sure to subscribe to the page and turn on notifications So that you know when we go live, which if you guys haven't figured it out just yet, it's every Thursday night, 7 central, was that 8 Eastern? I'm terrible with time zones and my wife's always giving me a hard time because I should know this, that is 8 Eastern.
1: Yes.
0: Oh. 8 Eastern, 7 Central, 6 Mountain the worst part is like I can picture the United States, like the map in my head and think about where all the different things are. But then when I'm on the spot, I can't think about it. Is that forward backwards? I, I struggle with the math portion of that. So I should write it down. I really should. Um, but yeah, thank you to everybody that tuned in tonight. We'll be back again next Thursday night, bringing you guys some more hope and inspiration and, helping spread the message that you're not alone and that we do recover. So thank you for everybody that tuned in tonight. Thank you, Mary Beth, for sharing your story. It was incredible, and I'm so grateful that you were willing to come on and share with us. Excited about the book that's coming out. Be sure to pre-order that book, and like Ashley said, leave a review that's so important. Cannot emphasize that enough. So thank you, guys, and remember – Progress, not perfection. See you guys next week.